Uh, the story I want to pick it up around verse 15 says this. And Naomi said, now this is, I'll stop right there. Uh, Naomi, this is a, a third dialogue that Naomi is having with her two daughters-in-law. We'll kind of give you guys a little bit of a background in a second here. Naomi was a lady that was married to a guy by the name of Elimelech. About 10 years have transpired from this particular point and from the very beginning of the book. Naomi was a Jewish lady. She lived in the region of what's called Bethlehem. It literally means house of bread. The initial irony in the story is that there's actually a famine in the house of bread. So uh, Naomi is, uh, does what she follows her husband. Her husband, Elimelech, makes a decision to leave house of bread because there's no bread and move to a particular region called Moab. Moab. Moab is east of the Dead Sea, which would kind of put it in proximity to around modern-day Jordan. It's about a 50-mile travel by foot from the region of Bethlehem. So you can imagine, kind of the distance from here to, say, Buellton, approximately. So that was the journey that they would have made. For 10 years, Naomi lived in this region of Moab with her husband. Um, she had two sons, and her two sons ended up getting married. Her two sons married not Jewish women, but married Moabite women, which was kind of a bummer because good Jewish families would want to keep the Jewish faith within the family, but because there were no other Jewish women to marry, they married outside of the Jewish family, ultimately outside of the Jewish tradition, would have married these two uh, female Moabite pagan slash women, and they would have been brought into the family. Unfortunately, in kind of some unfortunate events, uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and then her two sons, Malon and Chilion, also died. And so now what you're literally left with in this region of Moab is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Now, Naomi hears a rumor in around verse 6. She hears a rumor that there's bread back in the house of bread. That somehow God's visited his people in the region of Bethlehem and that the drought's over and that there's food back in the region of Bethlehem. So Naomi does what... You know, she probably, what you would imagine most people would do in her case, she kind of begins to make a journey back into the region of where she once came from. However, this presents kind of a difficult situation because as she's walking back, her two daughters-in-law are following her. Now, there's, the problem is, is that to bring two Moabite women back into the region of Bethlehem would be very difficult. For one, these two women that are following Naomi are not only widowed, but they were married for 10 years and never had a baby, meaning they were infertile. So to one, not only be women, but Moabite women outside of the tribe of Bethlehem or outside of the tribe of the Jewish people, but also women that were widowed and also women that were infertile would have been sort of kind of a quadruple blow against them in that ancient culture. They would have been identified or marked as damaged goods. They would have been marginalized. Rumors would have been spreading around that these women are infertile. And back in that day, that male-dominated culture, uh, for you to get married as a male, you'd want to make certain that you would marry a female that could have a lot of babies. That's just the way that it was. And so these girls would have been going back into a region that really presented not much for them. They would have been minorities. They would have been marked. And they would have been marginalized. Okay? And so as they're on their way back, Naomi stops and three times, three speeches, the narrator tells us, tries to talk her two daughters-in-law out of following her. Um, the second daughter-in-law, her name is Orpah, she decides to not go along. She does what is probably most natural or most normal. She decides 
rather than going back into a foreign land to where she would be a minority, to where she would be marked out, to where she would be marginalized, she decides to head back to Moab where she was most familiar with. And so the story picks up right at the end of the second dialogue or the second convincing argument that Naomi's trying to say to these two daughters. Orpah has already turned back. Now Ruth kind of enters into the storyline now. And Ruth begins to engage with Naomi because Naomi tries to talk Ruth out of coming, saying, I have nothing to offer you. There are no men that are going to want to marry you. Uh, you have no life whatsoever moving back with me into the region of Bethlehem. That's where the story picks up. Verse 15, uh, the third dialogue. And then Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you, for I will return from, do not urge me to leave you from, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And where you will be buried, I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And that's the story. And that's sort of the climactical part of the whole narrative that we look at and we're like, this is amazing. This is beautiful. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that the elements contained in this little short synopsis and dialogue and speech of Ruth to Naomi is really kind of the seed of every good story. Right? I mean, think about it. I'll give you some examples. Um, Shrek. All right? It's a story of a lady, a girl, beautiful lady, who decides to actually embrace the suffering or the pain of the ugly ogre because she loves him. She's willing to become an ogre for the sake of an old, ugly ogre because of love. It's also the story of Romeo and Juliet to some degree, that there is a sense where they're willing to make the sacrifice. They're willing to pay the ultimate price, if need be, for the sake of of love. It's also the story to some degree more or less. Uh, if you are familiar with the story or the movie called Shadowlands, it was a story about the life of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an author. He'd written a lot of books, but in this particular case, the movie was actually written about the life of C.S. Lewis. And in the story, C.S. Lewis falls in love. Uh, he's, a, he's a professor, and this is his life. And he was always living in the ivory towers and never really had much contact with the outside world. He was just always living in his own mind, writing stories, thinking things, and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, he comes in contact with this gal by the name of Joy. He falls in love with her, and he realizes something that he never really realized before. He's fallen in love. And all of a sudden, uh, the, the way the storyline kind of progresses uh, throughout this, the movie, she comes to find out she's got cancer. But he decides, nonetheless, to actually embrace her, to marry her, knowing that marrying her is also ultimately going to lead to her death. She'll die. She's got cancer. She's going to die. So by marrying her, he's also marrying himself to pain. But it's okay, even though it's tragic, even though it's hard, even though it's painful, because he loves her. Kind of the same story if some of you are like Lord of the Ring fanatics. All right, remember, remember, and I, I'm going to get this wrong because I'm not, a hu I mean, I like Lord of the Rings, but some of you guys are like Lord of the Ring geeks, and so if, if, I'm, if I speak heresy right now, you can correct me afterwards and I'll repent, um, but the reality is there's a girl, an elf, I should say, I don't know if you could call them girls, but she's an elf, female, whatever that is, uh, and she, what, Arrowin? Arrowin. Who said Ariel? Is it not, I think that's a different movie. Ariel? 
Arwen. What's it called? I need a theologian. What's it called? Arwen. Okay. She's an elf, but she falls in love with Aragon? Okay. What? Aragon, Aragon. What is it? Aragon. Okay. All right. Here we go. We got group collaboration here. She falls in love with him, but she's willing. She knows if she loves him, falls in love with him, wants to engage him for the rest of her life, she's got to let go of being an elf. She's got to become human. She's got to embrace pain and mortality. And, and the storyline is that because of love, she's willing to embrace pain, willing to embrace suffering, willing to embrace all the simple tragedies that are going to go along with life because of love. I mean, this is the stuff that movies are written about, books are written about. We wish somehow our lives would somehow tap into this stream of life or this narrative when people daydream about this stuff, they're like, I wish this would happen to me one day. But then reality strikes us and we're like, we know, I know it's not, right? Because you know why? We're so cynical. We're just like, it happens to everybody else. It happens on the silver screen. It happens on TV. It happens in the movies. But it will never, ever happen to me. And if it does happen to me, it'll all end up in something bad anyhow. Because we, we have this mentality where we're just, we're just like perennial cynics. I mean, I'm a cynic. I mean, to be quite frank with you, I'm like, I can identify cynics because I'm one of y'all. I mean, I know what it's like. I live that. I, re I remember, for example, for me, when I was around 12 years old, 14, somewhere around there, my parents actually got a divorce. And I remember uh, sort of this mentality in my mind thinking, I don't ever want to get married. I have no desire whatsoever to get married because I know what marriage does. I know what it's like. I know the pain that goes along with it. I had all these visions in my mind of my mom and dad fighting and arguing, things being thrown around, and I told myself, I never want that. So I was totally cynical. I was cynical of any type of relationship. And then when I became a Christian, just before I turned 16, things started changing. I mean, not so much where I'm just like, oh, I want to get married now. But it was like the thought of like entertaining, like, well, maybe, you never know, you know, if I meet the right person. And then all of a sudden, I met my wife, and I had to completely rewrite my 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 life story, all right? I'm like, all right, well, maybe I spoke out of line like years ago, and, you know, maybe I'll make an exception. But the reality is, is, I still didn't know what marriage, what a good marriage looked like. I didn't have it identified for me. I didn't have it outlined for me. I, didn't, I couldn't, like, look at it and just say, this is what it looks like. I mean, but literally, by God's grace, I can say we, we, we just celebrated 20 years of marriage. Totally God's grace. You know, that's a good thing. It's God's grace, of course. But my point is that what I'm trying to say is that we can easily become cynical over certain things because we wish somehow that story of love, that someone would show great kindness and affection and love and loyalty to us, irregardless of what types of circumstances might be in a person's life, and that they're willing to sell everything and lay everything aside just to come alongside of us and say, I'm committed to you. I mean, isn't that what all of us would love to have? To have somebody, regardless of what type of personality we are, regardless of what types of flaws we feel, regardless of the ugliness that we sense inside of us, to have somebody come up to us and say, I commit myself to you. You have nothing to offer me, and I don't want anything back from you. I just want to come alongside you and be your lifelong companion. There's something humanizing about that. There's something about that that just affects us on this level of pure humanity. And this is what makes the story of Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, 
so phenomenal. So what I want to do right now is I want to take a look. There's at least four things that I see in kind of this speech that Ruth says to Naomi that I really want to try to identify and understand um, that I think that, that, that really make this speech that Ruth makes to Naomi so beautiful. And the first of which is that it's sacrificial. So in other words, Ruth recognizes that she's willing to lay aside and give up all sorts of comfort and security for the sake of being basically a vagabond, a sojourner. And we see that because here's what she says, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay. In the actual Hebrew, the word stay, it doesn't mean like, you know, some of your translations might say, where you lodge, I will lodge. It makes it sound like, you know, she's just going to go find this nice house, maybe along the Mediterranean Sea. It's like beautiful, it's an amazing view. But that's not the word. It's actually the word sojourn, other, translated in other versions, sojourn, meaning that if you've got to be a vagabond for the rest of your life, I'll follow you. I'll let go of any security, any comfort, any entitlement that I would have or think I should have for security and comfort, just, just to go along with you, to be along with you. Uh, the second thing we see that she was also willing to leave her house and her home and join this completely foreign people, because she says, your people will be my people. And again, originally her people were the Moabite people, and they were natural enemies. Uh, the Moabites, I mentioned this to you guys a couple weeks ago, the Moabite people are a tribe of people that kind of came out of an incestuous relationship of Lot. Remember Lot? Lot had a daughter, and out of his daughter, they had this incestual tribe that came out. They were called the Moabites. And that's, that's where these people came from. So the Moabites were sort of enemies to the Jews. They didn't like the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Moabites. And they treated them as such. And so she's literally saying, look, I'm from the Moabite clan. I'm from the Moabite tribe. But I'm willing to leave my people in order to go to your people. To go to a people that actually hate me. Your people despise me. I realize I'm going to go there and I have no guarantees whatsoever of a life ahead of me. Uh, the only thing that I would assume would, would be that I would be marked, people would gossip about me, people would not like me, and I'll be mistreated. But I'm committed to you. Third thing we see is that she was also willing to uh, leave behind this old identity of her false gods. Uh, we're told just a few verses earlier that her sister-in-law, Orpah, uh, left and went back to her people as well as back to her gods. But here Ruth says, you know, I'll, I'll go with your god. I'm not going to go back, and I'll forsake my old gods. And the, the god of Moab was a god called the na- by the name of uh, Chemosh. And um, archaeologists have discovered, very similar to kind of the Egyptian sun god, Ra, and also the uh, Aztec god, ironically. Um, I'm not even sure what the Aztec god name was, but it was also a sun god. And uh, you can imagine back in those ancient civilizations when people lived in the desert, uh, the most ferocious type of uh, elements they would face was the sun in the middle of the summer. You can imagine how intensely hot it would be. People would literally die because of heat stroke, things of that nature. And so they kind of deified the sun. And it was this God that was a wrathful God. It was angry God. It was a God that killed, you know, the vulnerable. He killed those that weren't able to find shade. He was that type of God. And so to appease this angry, wrathful Kamash of the Moabite people... Uh, they would offer sacrifices. In some of the ancient archaeology we've discovered, uh, we've found that some of the types of sacrifices they would do were blood sacrifices. They would actually sacrifice human blood to somehow appease this very angry, wrathful, just vicious God that, that 
that is not happy with the people. And you never really know if you've fallen out of favor with this God or if you've gotten back into favor with this God. But she's, that, that becomes your identity. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes some of these ancient uh, civilizations and these ancient tribes, they were like warlords and they would fight all the time. They would kill people all the time. So if your tribe lives on one side of a mountain and you, know, you steal goats from another tribe and they come back and they fight and they kill a handful of your people and you guys vindicate that by killing a handful of other people, there's this constant warlord, warlording going on. A lot of anger, a lot of, a lot of hatred. Really, it's because the God they worship is a God of anger and a God of hatred. It's one of the reasons why the Bible says we become like the gods we worship. But, but Ruth, even though that was her identity growing up in the land of Moab to worship Kamash, she was able to say, your God's my God. I, I will sacrifice my identity to my God to adopt your new God. The final thing is uh, we also see that she was also willing to sacrifice two major essentials of life, which is food and family. I mean, food, beginning with food. Verse 6, even though there's a rumor that goes on that says there's food back in the region of Bethlehem, there's no guarantees. They couldn't, like, figure out for sure. I mean, she couldn't make a phone call and be like, is it true? Is there really food back there? I mean, again, news spread by word back in those days. Maybe by camelback, you know, it was slow. And so you never really had any guarantees. And so here she is making a radical sacrifice, assuming that maybe there will be food back there. It's okay, I'll go back. But then secondly, family. Ruth already realizes going back into this foreign land, into a foreign people that are not her people, they're Jewish, she's Moabite. Um, she is a widow and she's infertile. And on top of that, she's pagan. I mean, she's from a pagan background. She's damaged goods in that culture. Nobody's going to want her. She's an untouchable woman. She's somebody that nobody wants to have anything to do with. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of what typically can happen in some Indian cultures today in the world, in India. Where if a woman is married and her husband dies, uh, this still happens in certain portions and tribes throughout India, where if a husband dies, this woman, who is now a widow, uh, they used to have sort of a rite or a practice, they called it sati, S-A-T-I, where typically when a husband died, they would burn his body, and it was actually encouraged to tell the woman to jump on the fire to kill herself. Because once your husband dies, you don't have a life anymore. You're worthless. Your identity died with your husband. All that you are, your entire identity was literally found in your husband. If your husband's gone, you don't live anymore. And so they've actually outlawed sati in most places. It's against the law. Obviously, if you, you know, commit sati, I don't know how they're going to indict you. But the point of the matter is, is that in most cases, it's just simply wrong. But the reality is, if that was the culture you lived in, typically what would happen, even though it's outlawed, they would force you to shave your head so you're bald, and they would force you to wear kind of a red clothing to identify the fact that you are a widow. You, you are a nobody. You are worthless in that culture today. Nobody cares about you. Nobody thinks about you. You have no family. You have no rights. You have nothing. You're outcast. And, and that's, that's, Mo, that's Ruth, the Moabitess. She has no guarantees of any family. She comes back into this culture realizing no one's going to want me. I'm infertile. I'm a widow, I'm a female, and I'm from a pagan tribe. 
of absolutely nothing. But she's willing to sacrifice that and say, I'll follow you. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 24. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So it's as if Jesus is always drawing these analogies from nature. And he's just like, you know what? Following me is like a seed. A seed. You take a seed. It doesn't look like much. It's not very pretty. There's nothing sensational about a seed. But that seed has to go into a ground. And before that seed's going to begin to germinate and grow, it's got to basically die. It will be alone in the ground, under the soil, compacted under soil. And at some point, it, it's dead. It's alone. There's, it's literally, there's, it's, it's alone. There's nothing with it whatsoever. But that seed actually has entered into a new phase of life. And in some ways, it's Ruth. She's like this seed that died. She's like this woman that says, I die to everything. I die to my old life. I die to my comforts. I die to my hopes of ever having food or ever being a part of a family. I die to it all because I'm counting this cost. And we'll look at what I think motivated Ruth to make this radical step in a second. The next thing that I notice is that what makes Ruth's love so beautiful is that it's courageous. It's courageous. C.S. Lewis said this about courage. He said, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the point of testing. I love that. He's like, look, courage is not just like one virtue among 50. It's the summation of every virtue under pressure. You know, kind of when, you, when you see in the news and some guy like maybe saves something or he's like, becomes a hero and everybody's like, what made you be a hero? And the guy's like, I don't know. I just did what I thought came natural in the moment. I went and I rescued the cat. And everybody's like, that's amazing. He's like, it was just normal. And, you know, for him, some people are like, he's just trying to be all, like, nonchalant about it. But in reality, he, that's just the way he feels. He's just like, look, in the moment, I just did what most people would have done. I love Band of Brothers. There was a movie put out many years ago called Band of Brothers. And I love it. There's, like, all these, like, little interviews intermittently throughout the, the series. And there's these, you know, old guys, like, in their 80s and 90s. And uh, they're, they're chatting about, like, what happened way back in the day. And, and these guys are heroes. I mean, they literally are heroes. They fought. They survived. They lived to tell the story of it. And these guys are so nonchalant about it. They're like, yeah, you know, I went in and I saved Jack and pulled him out. He had both of his legs blown off, but it's cool. I just carried him out through. I was shot at and, you know, had a landmine. And he's all, but it was, I just did what was normal. This is Courage. They were just doing what came natural in the moment. It was sort of the summation of all of these virtues. And that's exactly what Ruth did. Ruth just kind of looked at the moment and says, look, all that I realize is that I don't know much about what lay ahead of me. But what I do know right now is I know I'm deeply committed to you, Naomi. So committed, here's what she says. It's profound. Take a look about verse 18. She says, where you die, I will die. Where you are buried... I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me also and more also if anything else but death parts me from you. So here's what she says. She actually calls down a curse. She says, I'm so committed to you that God bring wrath and judgment down upon me in the same way that he brought calamity upon you. Let God bring that and even more so upon me if, if I break my oath. Can you imagine that? 
I mean, was she just kind of making this stuff up? I don't think so. Was this just some sort of a sentimental plea? I, I, think, I think Ruth really meant it. She was so deeply committed. She just simply says, Naomi, your life was a tragedy, but I vow to bear that same tragedy if I break my word to you. It's total courage. It's one of the reasons why we love this story. Third thing is that Ruth, uh, this love that she has for Naomi is so beautiful because it's unconditional. It's unconditional. This is kind of an amazing reality is that nowhere in the story, in fact, I would say the argument for this is based upon what's not in the story because there's really nothing that would indicate the fact that there were any strings attached, no conditions. In other words, Ruth wasn't like, look, I'll come with you as long as you can guarantee me that nice house on the Mediterranean Sea, all right? I'll come with you as long as you write me into your will. Or I'll come with you as long as you can assure me that there's, you know, some good-looking guy somewhere in your city, all right, that I can maybe get married to. I'll come with you as long as there's some sort of pay recompense given back to me. Like, there's no strings attached whatsoever. It's completely detached from any type of obligation. She's not expecting anything at all from Ruth because she realizes that, Ruth has, or that Naomi has absolutely nothing to offer Ruth. So Ruth is able to say, I'm committing myself to you with no conditions. There's nothing I expect from you at all. Look, the bottom line is this, is that in our culture, we really don't think like this, do we? I mean, so much of the way that we operate is very conditional. Very conditional. We make obligations, but they're not obligations on the same level as the way Ruth made this obligation. We make obligations that are lesser than. Our obligations are often based upon, I'll do this for you as long as you do this and this and this and this and maybe this for me. And then I'll do it. In fact, most of the time, what we expect in return is never even mentioned or never even voiced. I'll give you an example of this. I see this a lot, for example, even within churches, within families, uh, outside of the actual nuclear family. Um, I think the closest thing you have to that is like a church. You have a church family. People get together. And uh, in a lot of ways, people are very different. They bring very different personalities and temperaments and whatnot to the table. And so you have this group of people that are united under Jesus Christ, even though there may not be a lot of other things that unite them. They're united by Jesus Christ. But the reality is, is that Within the church, you've got varying levels of commitment. There are some people that are totally committed, some people that are kind of on the outskirts, some people that are more cynical. They sit um, every single Sunday, they listen, they watch, they critique, they judge, but they sit on the sidelines. They treat the church more like you would treat a hotel room than you would actually treat a home. It's just a place, something that you use, you take care of the goods and services, and then when you're done, you leave your towel sitting on the ground, and you don't really care because you know that there will always be somebody there to clean up after your mess. That's the way oftentimes people act. But every once in a while, you get some people that are like, I really want to jump in. I really want to serve. I really want to just commit myself to this family, to this group, to these people. And what oftentimes I've observed over the years is that sometimes people can start out very excited. They're happy. They're very committed. Uh, they're very active. They jump in. They give out a lot. But what ends up happening is at some point over the years, they become very bitter. They become very bitter. There's a discontentedness, there's a disconnect, there's a distancing. And oftentimes one of the reasons why this happens is because even though the commitment may have started out on an unconditional level, like, I love Jesus, I want to serve. What ends up happening is it morphs. The default mode of our heart is to go back 
and to want to make certain that we become sort of the center of everything. So here's what happens. We begin to think that I, I want to be recognized, or I want credit for something, or I want to be acknowledged, or I want to be paid, or I want something. And what happens is because there's no recognition, voices don't get heard oftentimes, the recognition doesn't come the way that you want it, because oftentimes these things become um, affirmation-type idols. What I mean by that is idols that have to do with affirmation. I really desperately long for the affirmation from somebody else. So what really ends up happening is bitterness begins to subtly, quietly set in, because what started out that might have been a devotion or a commitment based upon some sort of um, unconditional agreement has now moved into a condition that I'll serve as long as I get some sort of recognition. It's one of the number re one reasons why people end up growing bitter. I see it in marriages. I mean, it's okay to assume in a marriage that love is reciprocated. But oftentimes in marriages or relationships, sometimes we place too much of an expectation upon the other person where they become an idol to us. We expect more out of them than what they are capable of actually giving to us. And then we become bitter. Because really, our commitment to them is not unconditional. It's very conditional. People sometimes say, we live in a very non-committal culture. In reality, it's not true. We live in a very self-committed culture. People are very committed. It's not that people are not, not committed. They're very committed. I mean, I can look around in this room and realize every one of y'all are very committed to something. All of you guys. There's nobody here that's like always 100% lazy 100% of the time. Like complete deadbeat. Like even deadbeat dads are deeply committed. They're deeply committed to being deadbeat. All right? The point of the matter is, or being self-focused, the point of the matter is, is that when we talk about commitment, oftentimes our commitment is very self-focused. And when somebody says... I will unconditionally give myself to you, commit myself to you on the basis of X, Y, and Z. We're actually not committed to that person for the sake of them. We're committed to ourselves. It's ourself that we're actually committed to. So we make these conditions saying, as long as we posture ourselves in a place where it all works out good for us, then we, then we jump in. Then we dive in. As long as it's agreeable to us that somehow in the end I get something out of this that will actually make me feel good about myself or give me the affirmation to desire or along, then I'll jump in. Look, you know the only cure to that? Is you find your affirmation in God. It's one of the reasons why the Bible constantly keeps going back to saying, you want a reward? The greatest rewarder is God. You have to see him as a rewarder. If you don't see God as a rewarder, and if you somehow project upon somebody else that, oh, they'll be my rewarder. Look, I'll tell you what, they'll let you down. That could be a marriage. That could be a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. If you're looking to them for some sort of reward, you will, I absolutely predict, I might even just say prophesy, that you will be let down. You will be let down. Because nobody has eternal capacity to reward you like God does. But I think there's something about Ruth's commitment to Naomi that says, you have nothing to offer to me. And I make no conditions with you to serve you. But I will entrust myself entirely to you unconditionally. That's what makes the story so beautiful. 
and we'd take a totally different route if Ruth sits down with a pen and pad paper and says, look, I'll follow you if these agreements are right. I mean, the story, wouldn't it take like a different route? You read through that, you'd be like, oh, that's normal. It's like, and they shake on it, they like, spit and shake on it. You know, take a blood oath, they sign the agreement, lawyers sign the agreement, like, it's all good. You know, it would take a different route. I mean, we wouldn't read, we wouldn't read the story with the sentimentality that we read it with. But the reality is, is that what makes this story so beautiful, this commitment of Ruth so beautiful, is the fact that it's done unconditionally. The final thing that I want to notice is really what makes this story of love so beautiful is that it actually images God. It reflects who God is. Ruth makes his commitment to Naomi on the basis of something that's really profound. I'm going to try to dig a little bit deeper with you guys to try to understand what this is. But before I can try to show this to you, I want to I give you a little bit of a kind of a structural flavor of the rest of the book of Ruth. A lot of Bible scholars have, have identified um, a literary mechanism that's actually used throughout the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is actually broken down into four chapters. Now, when the uh, book was originally written, it wasn't actually written in typical chapters. I mean, it was written with probably like uh, silent chapters. I mean, it wasn't like chapter one, you know, blah, 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 and then chapter two, you know. It was just probably written with these natural breaks. And then uh, people came along later and put verses and chapter breaks actually there. Um, but when the book was originally written, a lot of scholars and theologians have identified that there's a literary mechanism that's actually used throughout the book that's called a chiasm. I want to try to explain that to you a little bit because a lot of scholars believe that what, what Ruth says here in this little story, uh, the speech that she makes is actually a, a, a chiasm. And I'll try to explain that to you what it means. Take a look at this um, example of it. So this is chapter one uh, in this kind of chiastic structure. And I hope, hope this makes sense to you. Um, I wanted to make sure you guys can see a diagram of it, so um, I'm not going to confuse you um, more than I typically do. But, um, so for example, chapter 1, verse 1 starts out, it basically tells the audience, the narrator tells the audience, famine is in the land. Chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1 says, harvest. So what you see is, chapter starts out, famine ends with harvest. So what's going to go on in between kind of collapses in upon itself. The second thing we see, uh, verse 1, is we see this emigration to Bethlehem. The last thing that we see in the chapter is this immigration from Moab to Bethlehem. You can kind of see the structure, the way it works. Naomi, chapter starts out, she says, my name is Pleasant. You know, Naomi means pleasant. The last part of the chapter, she says, don't call me Pleasant because I'm bitter. So you, you see kind of this chiastic structure where you see the beginning verse, the last verse, second to last verse, sec, you know, so on and so forth, kind of moving together uh, towards the, the center part. So verses 11 to 13, you kind of see the, the center of this entire chiastic structure, um, typically identified as Naomi saying, I cannot fulfill my obligations, this idea that she has no ability, no means, no way to be able to somehow figure out how she can solve the problem or the puzzle that's in the book of Ruth. But that's okay, because the author is actually trying to set the stage to say, Naomi cannot fulfill this massive undertaking that the book is going to be leading towards. She can't do it, but God can. So, so the stage is set in that Naomi can't do anything, but God is capable of doing everything. So take a look at the next chiastic structure um, found in um, the few little verses that we'll take a look at. Next slide. Never mind. Um, I'm sure it'll come up there. Um, verses 16 to 17. Okay, here we go. 
So you'll see, first one, it says this, where you go, I will go. That's kind of paired with the last thing that she says there, where she says, and there I will be buried. So wherever you go, I'll be buried there. Secondly, she says, where you stay, I will stay. Or where you dwell, I will dwell. But wherever that is, I'll die there. And then in between, sandwiched in between, is, is the two major, the, the crux of everything that she's saying here. And here's what she says. Your people, in fact, the way the structure, the actual structure of the Hebrew that's written here is verse 1, the part of that, the part where she says, where you go, this is sort of looking to the future. She says, look, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Wherever you die, that's where I will die. So she's actually projecting, looking in the future, saying, this is what will happen one of these days, and I'm making my covenant promise to you to be faithful to you in this. But here's what she says in between, sandwiched in between all this. She says, your people, some of your translations might add it like this, but this is incorrect. She does not say, your people will be my people. The actual Hebrew says, your people, my people. The second thing, she doesn't say, your people, God will be my God. She's actually saying, your God, my God. In other words, this is in the now. So here's what Ruth's trying to say. Naomi, I'm, I can't leave you. I'm deeply committed to you, and I'm deeply committed to your people because, here's why, your God is my God. What you're reading here is one of the most beautiful examples in the Old Testament, literally, of a conversion. Like, somewhere on the road between Moab and Bethlehem are are two women full of grief, pain, sorrow. They know by nature they're totally marginalized. They will be forgotten. Nobody will care about them. There's nobody looking out after them, so they think. There's no hope for them. There's no anticipation of a better life moving on into the region of Bethlehem. But in their minds, they're just left with this assumption that nothing, nobody's caring for us. All we simply have is nothing but the bitter providence of God. And in the middle of all that, Ruth says, I'm going to follow your God. And because I'm going to follow your God, God's people will be my people. And because you're God's people, I'm committed to you. I will never leave you. I can't leave you. Because your God, who's now become my God, has never left me. It's absolutely amazing what Ruth is saying. This conversion of a pagan. It's as if God just reaches down in that instant and says, I will pluck her, I will rescue her, I will save her, though she was from this paganistic background culture, worshiped the false god that was known for his anger and ferocity and fierceness and destruction and devastation, that somehow in the middle of all of this, even though Naomi has been very bold to describe to Ruth Look, everything that's happened in my life is because God has brought it into my life. The bitter hand of God is on my life. So somehow, Ruth, even in the midst of the bitter circumstances befallen Naomi, somehow Ruth is able to say, but Yahweh is greater than Kamash. Because somehow Yahweh, even though he brings in bitter providence, somehow his bitter providence gets turned 
to a smile at some point. At some point, God smiles. At some point, God shines. At some point, God makes good out of evil. At some point, God is able to take the dark clouds that are surrounding us, that are just simply oppressing us, and turn them into goodness. So Ruth's able to say, your God is my God. That's why Ruth's able to be courageous. That's why she's able to be self-sacrificing. That's why she's able to live this life in such profound commitment, love, and loyalty to Naomi is because she's seen the profound commitment that God has made to her. During the time of um, Ruth, we're told, again, kind of a little bit of a hint at the end of the story that all of this takes place during the time of the barley harvest, which is interesting because the Bible once in a while kind of puts these little dates in there and we can read it and all of a sudden identifies to us kind of a, a calendar year when this took place. So barley harvest, um, interestingly, interestingly, is associated with what we typically call Shavuot or uh, the Feast of Pentecost. And that's around 50 days after Easter. So somewhere around this time, give or take a handful of days, maybe a week, two weeks or so, somewhere like that from Easter, around this time of year, maybe June, July, somewhere around there, more so June and whatnot, is, is when uh, Shabbat typically would take place. So what would happen is the children of Israel would gather around. It would be the time of the harvest. And it was a really time of great celebration. Imagine all these people working really hard in the field. There's all sorts of harvest, uh, all sorts of grain to be harvested. Big mounds of grain everywhere. Um, it was a time of great celebration, jubilation. You work really hard. Imagine like 15-hour days because they'd work up from sunup to sundown. So you can imagine everybody's just poop working out really hard. Um, and, and, you know, just everybody's making money hand over fist because everyone's prosperous. And usually at nighttime was time of great celebration. But once the final harvest came in, everybody was stoked, man. They would just party. They would drink good wine. They would eat good food. Celebration would be going on all over the place. And typically is a way for them to remember that wow, God has shown up. God has actually visited us. God has demonstrated his covenant faithfulness to us because he brought us food. Because you've got to think of it this way. I mean, they didn't go down to Vons and buy groceries. They didn't have Trader Joe's. I don't know, that's really hard to imagine life without Trader Joe's. But that's the way it was back then, you know. And I know it was a lot tougher back then. But the reality is, is that that's just how they lived. They lived off of the land. And so when they had these moments of harvest, it was a time of great celebration. And traditionally, during the time of Pentecost, today, Jews actually read the story of Ruth. Because it's a story that they recognize, it's identified during the time of Shavuot, and they would read the story, and they would be reminded of God's covenant faithfulness to his people during that time, that God has not forsaken them. God doesn't leave his people. In fact, God covenants himself to his people and never leaves them, never forsakes them. And so, several, maybe about 1,500 years or so later, from this story, we come to another story during the time of Pentecost. Would you turn there real quick? It's in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And I'll set the background for you very quickly. It's a story when the children of Israel, uh, Jesus came to them. Jesus died. Jesus rose again from the dead. And uh, he ascends up into heaven. And all of a sudden, the church is alive. Man, I mean, God is moving in a profound way in sort of this new, brand new formed, newly formed, what's called messianic community. It's a community of Jews, but they've been moved because the Messiah came. Jesus has come. Life has been given to them. 
their lives are different. And so what happens is they're sitting around waiting uh, during the time of Pentecost. And it would imagine, wouldn't it be interesting that there they are in the upper room, actually reading the book of Ruth, reading this exact story that we just read about God's covenant faithfulness to provide, to actually give life, to breathe life into his people somehow miraculously, beautifully. And so then all of a sudden we're told in this story that this sound of a rushing mighty wind comes in and the people there in this early church in this upper room are filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to speak in unknown languages, uh, just miracles begin to happen, certain great things begin to take place, transpire. A bunch of people come in, they're kind of confused as to what's going on and Peter responds to them and says, this is what happened, this is a result of God's doing, God showed up, God has actually visited his people, he's taken all sorts of people, brought them together in this one loaf, this church, uh, and God's moving, God's working, and then he preaches the gospel to them about what Jesus did. In other words, what he's pointing out to them is that God has actually not forgotten his people. He's not forsaken his people. That's what we're prone to think, isn't it? When we suffer, when we go through hard times, we think maybe God bailed. Maybe God just left. Maybe he no longer is in control. Maybe he really no longer cares. Maybe he is in control, but he doesn't have all power to somehow help us in the midst of our pain. Or if he is all-powerful, he's not all-loving. But The story of the Bible and the story of Ruth is that, no, God is actually all-powerful. And he is all loving. And he's always in control. And Peter shares this message. And the this whole point is to say, and to prove the fact that God is all loving, to prove the point that God is all powerful, Peter says, I want you to look at exhibit A, Jesus on the cross. God came to you people who were stiff-necked, hardened, evil, wicked, covenant-breaking, deserving of nothing, no good thing. God came to you people, and he demonstrated outstanding, uncompromising, courageous, self-sacrificial love to you, demonstrated on the cross. And as a result of preaching that message, many people got saved. But, but listen to this last few verses in about verse 45, chapter 2. It says this, and when they, in verse 44, start with there. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were all selling their possessions, belongings, distributing their proceeds to all as any as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here, what we see in this passage here is this unbelievable work of God where people are literally selling their cars and their televisions and deferring doing home improvement projects on their house because they're like, look, we, there's people in our church right now that are hurting. We want to make sure that they don't go without. We want to make sure that their, you know, medical bills are able to be taken care of if they're hurting. We want to make sure that they're actually able to pay their mortgage. Or if somebody's hurting, I want to make sure that I can at least maybe give them some money so they can go get the counseling they need or whatever the case may be. You see a church of people very similar to what Ruth did with Naomi making these radically courageous, self-sacrificial gestures. Why was Ruth able to do that? Why was the church able to do that? Because they saw the radical, courageous, self-sacrificial gestures that God did to them. 
Look, if we stop right here and we're just like, okay, you guys all like this story? It's a good story, huh? Loving people, sacrificing. If I were to stop right here and be like, okay, everybody go do it, right? Just go be like that. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Like, do I turn to people and be like, your people will be my people. Your Starbucks, my Starbucks. Like, what does that mean? Like, how does it live itself out? And it, you, you walk out of here and you will actually at some point maybe start out with this mentality of like, oh, cool, I'll do it. This is awesome. This is how we should live. This is great. I'm so happy I'm part of this church. And you will get out of here and you will try it for like 20 minutes and then you'll realize these people are ungrateful. They're unthankful. They never give back. All they do is complain. Curse these people. And you will become classic cynic. Right? That's where we're all at. So how do you melt the cynic's heart? Look, let me tell you what. The only way you can melt the cynic's heart is you understand what God did to you. That you were the ungrateful, wicked sinner who never gave thankfulness, never gave gratitude, never showed an ounce of praise and worship to God. And yet God, through Jesus, not just talked about bringing God's curse upon himself, but actually brought God's curse upon himself, bore God's curse for you. Look, the only thing that will melt the cynical heart is for you to see what God did to you. That actually liberates you to stop trying to find affirmation or some sort of means of payback from somebody else and it frees you to somehow in a most profound way to love like God loves. That means you can love people that will never, ever say thank you. You can love people that don't have anything to give back by way of gratitude. You guys, that's the gospel. That's the way it works. That works in a church. Or sometimes people come in and are like, I'll join the church, I'll be a part. And they get it like a weekend, they're like, this place sucks. Everybody's weird. They make fun of me. You know, it's just like, welcome to a household of sinners. All right, that's who we are. Or you're like, I'm going to get married and I'll just find bliss and it's amazing. And you get married and you realize, you know, the person you're married leaves things laying around and there's just messes everywhere and you're just like all disillusioned. You're like, I thought this was going to be amazing. And you're like, this stinks. Life is horrible. Or you're like, I'm going to have a kid. I'll be walking through the park with my stroller with all the other moms and her cute little strollers. You know, just I'll look really hip and look cool and have my baby and just push my child on the swing. And they realize they throw up. They always need their diaper changed. They're always taken. And they never say thank you. They never give anything back. And we become cynical because we, we, we fail to realize that all of that is who we are before God. And yet God has been incredibly gracious and kind, courageous, self-sacrificial to us. We had nothing to give back to him. And that's why Ruth was able to be courageous because she says, your God is my God. I don't understand his ways. And yeah, his providence over your life has been dark. His providence over my life has been dark. 
But your God is better than Kamash. His ways are mysterious. I don't understand it, but he's a big God. Because he's my God, you're my sister, your people are my people. I can't betray that. We're going to respond. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. I'm going to have the guys come on up and lead us in some song worship. We're going to finish by partaking of communion. We do this every week. It's a way for us to remember the fact that when we take the bread and we drink the cup, we dip in the bread in the cup, it reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That we didn't deserve it. In fact, we were ill-deserving of God's richest blessings. Meaning we, we didn't just not deserve it. We ill-deserved it. Every bit of grace, kindness that God has ever shown to us, we've always taken that and used it for our own self-purposes to boost our ego, to turn our back on God. And yet God kept giving, kept sustaining, kept showing kindness over and over and over again. And the way this affects us is we look at other people. We are human beings that live amongst other human beings, which means we interact with people. And oftentimes our greatest challenges in this life are with the people sitting next to you right now. It could be your spouse, roommate, people that you know, people maybe you don't even know. And we wonder, how do we deal with people? And the answer the gospel is going to tell us is you deal with other people that are painful, difficult, and hard the same way that God dealt with you who was painful, difficult, and hard. And I'm telling you, unless you see the cross and you let the cross be applied to your life, you will become a cynic. The cross melts our cynicism. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship for some of you. Response right now might look like you confessing sin to Jesus. It might look like you asking God to wash you and cleanse you and forgive you for your cynicism. For some of you, it might mean you repenting from the fact that you thought you can just be a Christian, follow God, enjoy God's grace, but actually hate his people. Not love his people, not be committed to his people. For some of you, you may need to repent from that. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says, I'm the head, they're my body. Is there a distinction between your head and your body? There's none. It's one. Remove the head from the body, you're dead. Jesus' whole point is that my body is one with me, so intricately one with me, it's, it is me. It's part of my body. So you can't be a Christian and say, I hate Christians. I love Jesus. Don't like Christians. Go to worship God, but I'll never hang out with other Christians because they hurt me. Look, the way you get past that is you see the fact that you've hurt God with your sin. And that God incredibly loved you. That's what melts our cynicism. That's what changes our hearts. That's what fuels us to be like God, to be image bearers of God. Both in life, but also in vocation, the way that we live, the way that we look at other people. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We need the cross to shatter foggy images of self God we so oftentimes think that we are so much more deserving than what we really have and yet we always fail to consider the 
riches of grace that have always been showered upon us and sustaining us from the moment we were conceived within our mother's womb. A miracle in and of itself. We were birthed, conceived by a breath of God. So God, I pray right now that you would humble us before you, melt our cynicism, but more than anything, God, I pray that you would just cause us to get a a, a glimpse, a picture of the cross where love and judgment both met, that Jesus took upon himself our curse so that we can take upon ourselves his favor for you, that we are accepted by you, not just accepted, endured, but enjoyed and loved. God, you love us, so we partake of communion, remembering that, we confess sin, remembering the cross. We sing to you, God, right now, because you're a worthy God.